Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on a few students from the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts who are in their creative writing program. They're going to be showcasing some of their work from the past semester and talking a little bit about it as well. A huge thank you to the students, as well as Laura Naughton and the rest of the staff at NOCA's Creative Writing Department for making this collaboration happen. And without further ado, here we go. Hello, my name is Christian Palmer, and I am a senior in high school. I attend Warren Easton Charter High School in NOCA. For the past two months at NOCA, I have been studying travel literature, as well as writing my own travel pieces, one of which I will share today. The personal essay I'm about to read covers my experience on going to New York for the first time and how there was a bit of a culture shock after living in the South my entire life. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Plane ticket to New York. It was seven in the morning. The Louisiana sun had tinted the earth and all in its path. Morning dew lustered everything that I could see. Bella, my dog, pranced into the lawn, water droplets sprouting to her paw steps. It was the day I would go to Syracuse, New York, for a two-week creative writing program over the summer. My grandmother's gumbo I had eaten the night before felt as if it would rise out of my belly. There was a coldness brewing in my chest every time I exhaled. Of course I was nervous. Being away from home without my parents for the first time was more than overwhelming. After putting Bella back in her cage, I prayed for friends and a comfortable bed. My mom spent the night before telling me how her dorm's cot at Seton Hill back in the 80s would leave the left side of her body aching. Christian, get your snacks. Get all your stuff together. We're about to leave, my mom yelled. Once we pulled up to the Louis Armstrong International Airport, I felt that glob of coldness return, but this time it churned in my belly. Passing by the shops that advertised their rich praline candy or fresh and hot jambalaya made me realize that in two hours I will elevate into a land where deep-dish pizzas oozed several coats of cheeses and tomato sauce. I had to admit I was going to miss the heavy southern accents that plagued the people I called my family and neighbors, specifically the unique New Orleanian accent that's described to be a rue of Mississippi slang and broken Creole. I put in my headphones and cradled my mom's arm as we passed under the Welcome to New Orleans banner that faded behind the never-ending metal limbs holding departure gate letters. We landed at Syracuse's quaint but busy airport at 10. I was shocked how this was New York, and yet there were no skyscrapers or taxis paving the streets golden with their yellow paint. At the same time, I had only gained that big city single story from Disney movies and books specifically about New York City. But I understood New York only to be NYC. Who knew that New York the state was so different from New York City? Outside the airport, there was no bizarre traffic or crowds of people just construction. So disappointed in what my eyes were seeing, I scurried to the shuttle with my mom that would take us to Syracuse University, where I would study writing for half a month. Once there in front of the residence hall where I would sleep, the coldness inside emerged even stronger than before. For a moment, when my mom held me in her arms after our goodbye hug, it melted in the warmth and familiarity of her brown arms wrapped around my body. With that, I walked to the entrance, pushing my jittery fingers in front of me, to pull open the door. I said hi and waved to the first person that passed me. They continued walking, giving me the side eye. I was a little hurt, but I told myself that I wasn't loud enough for that person to even hear me, which gave me the strength to carry on to the front desk. 
Before I could say anything, the guy behind the counter, whose eyes never left his phone, blurted, Name? Stunned, I replied, Um, Christian. Christian Palmer? Key, ID. If you lose them, there's a fee. He dangled a couple things before me. Have a good one, he continued. I parted from the desk, making my way to the third floor, holding onto the coldness that was with me at home and stuck with me to this place where the people seemed so cold. At least so far, it seemed like they were. I had believed that all northern people were cold and all southern folks were warm, and no one could tell me differently. Later on that day, I met someone, Kalia. She was from Syracuse. I would later find out that she began talking to me because I looked like I needed a friend. I did. She walked up to me after our RAs had assembled everyone for a floor meeting and asked if I wanted to hang out with her. I did, of course. We walked around campus and eventually stopped at the basketball courts to play basketball, although both of us couldn't make a shot even with the assistance of the backboard. After an hour or so, we strolled back to our dorms, thankful for the chilled breeze that blew softly past our bodies, wiping out sweat that beaded down our foreheads. I called my mom and told her I was going to be okay. The coldness comforted me in a way I couldn't explain. My name is Mary Murphy, and I'm a senior at NOCA. Over the last quarter, I've been studying writings by lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women. Though primarily focused on memoir, I've also read fiction, academic texts, poetry, and multi-genre works, all covering themes of transition, communication, and loss. My writing for this quarter has similarly taken many different shapes and forms. Most of it focused on my research on my great-uncle Gerald Comiskey, an openly gay man murdered in 1984. But through Jerry, I've also talked about my bizarre relationships with dead relatives, my fears of being forgotten, and my paranoia over legacies. These are only a few pieces to come out of the quarter, which I hope you enjoy. Facts about Gilligan. 1. Gilligan, if squinted at hard enough, does not become Comiskey. 2. Gilligan, like Comiskey, is an Irish surname. This is the only connection I can claim being born as Murphy. 3. Flooding in New Orleans is constant, so to prevent bodies from being swept away, people need concrete tombs. There are family and community plots. Gilligan is a community plot. 4. The name Gilligan doesn't appear in Hope Mausoleum or St. Patrick No. 1. Trust me, I've checked. 5. St. Patrick No. 2 does have a Gilligan plot, marked by a skinny, fading tombstone. It's been around since 1860. Inside, Smith, Costello, Curley... Comiskey. Six. I figured if Jerry were buried under a different name, it would be his mother's, McManera. Hope against hope, I wanted to find him under Comiskey, because at least then he could retain something from his life. He was instead listed under Gilligan. Seven. Gilligan? I asked, double-checking the map's layout of St. Patrick number two. Eight. Gilligan? The clerk answered, tapping plot 42. 9. It takes five minutes to walk from the cemetery clerk's office to Gilligan's plot. Or, if you're me, 6, because you walk down the wrong row of headstones. 10. 
Gilligan is engraved on the community plot steps. Underneath, in slightly smaller letters, Comiskey. 11. Gilligan, if squinted at hard enough, does not become Comiskey. Photographs. I like bad photos of Jerry. There's one where he's out of focus, kneeling next to a couch, a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. There's another where he stands near the front door of someone's home, and he looks off to the side, so his eyes aren't color correct. Another photo has him in a floral print chair with a 70s bowl cut. I've met relatives in those photos. I can smell the shag carpeting and overstuffed couches. There's familiarity to them. I consider them, in a way, my almost memories. Behind the dresser of my parents' bedroom are two large poster boards filled with old family photos. Dad organized it for Mom's 40th. She shows me them in jokes. This is why our photo albums are so empty. I recognize photos of my dad's family. There are photos of my aunt, my grandmother, my cousins. Mom's family is harder to place. I know which ones are my mom and my grandparents, but... I've never seen my uncles as kids. There's a large photo in the middle of one board, a family portrait from the 70s. Which one's Anne, I ask. Mom stares at the photo, then points at a girl with long, vaguely curly hair. This one. I've never seen her so young, I say. Hmm. Mom taps her finger against the board, then slides it to a photo where she's in a bathtub. I can't believe they added a photo of me naked. Curls. I've heard Aunt Anne had the type of dark corkscrew curls that could open wine bottles. No one knows how she got them. Most of the family has straight, thin hair. But she did, and the curls stayed no matter what. Even chemo didn't make her hair fall out. Mom envied Anne's hair. Her own hair is flat, near impossible to style correctly. On her wedding day, It took an hour for her to get a short, springy bob. While she adjusted her veil, Anne went into the bathroom next door to turn on the faucet, wet her fingers, and scrunch her hair. Their hairstyles were identical in half a minute. I love your hair. It looks so easy to fix up. Mom laughed, only partially bitter. Anne also laughed. Maybe she was a little bit bitter, too. You know what? You can have it. When I was a kid, my own dark hair was a nightmare. I got thick hair from my dad, but not the mullet. Starting preschool looking like a 70s rock star horrified my mom. So one night, she snuck into my room as I slept and snipped off two long locks of hair with children's scissors. The next morning, mom was scrambling eggs, and I came downstairs. When she turned to me, she nearly dropped the skillet. My hair had turned into dark corkscrew curls overnight, a spinning image of Anne's. The curls stuck until I was ten. I didn't mind the change. I always found my hair too unruly. To this day, I hate using combs because I think they'll latch onto another knot. But Mom missed the curls. She always used them as a way to talk about how much I was like Anne. I'm sure they'll come back. Mom sounds as if she's comforting me. Anne's curls also turned to waves when she hit puberty. 
But the girls came back after a few years. I'm sure yours will, too. Writing this now, my hair is completely chopped off. I don't know if the curls ever came back, because I cut it before it passes my earlobes. Hi, this is Ayana Sophia. I'm a level four student in creative writing at NOCA, and this piece I'll be reading is part of a research project on graphic narrative and illustration. I've been focusing mainly on various styles of graphic storytelling, mainly comics and graphic novels. So this story will ultimately be accompanying a number of illustrations that I've been working on. It's a sort of allegorical, magical realism piece. Thanks for listening. Unhinged. Maria noticed a seam on her abdomen one morning while she was getting dressed. It started above her hip bone, and on the other side, a hinge protruded under her skin. There was no handle anywhere, so Maria dug the tips of her fingers under one edge of the seam and swung open her lower abdomen to reveal a moderately sized crow resting in her pelvic bone. The crow stirred, but Maria wasn't in any pain. She wondered how long the door and the bird had been there. Had this crow been cooped up inside of her for years without her knowledge? Although it was a very beautiful bird, and she was fascinated by its origin, she thought that she ought to let the crow go. Go on, then, she sighed with some reluctance. Get on with it. The crow uprighted itself and, using her sacrum for leverage, launched itself out of Maria and through the open window with a loud beat of its wings, leaving behind a single feather, black and reflective as spilled oil. Maria looked down into the now empty space inside of herself and closed the hatch. She thought that it was for the best that the bird was no longer trapped and could now spread its wings. Maria finished school and grew older, though not very old. She always kept her abdomen closed, not wanting to be reminded of its emptiness. She met a man who was taller than she was and had strong arms and a kind smile. Both of their parents were very old-fashioned in their beliefs, but Maria and the man were not their parents, so Maria often spent the night at his apartment, pressing as close to him as possible in his small bed, their bare skin sticking with sweat in the summer, not cool enough under the fan that seemed to be about to fly from the ceiling. Maria told the man that the mark on her belly was just a scar, shaped like a door that could never be opened. He believed this because he was going to fall in love with her. Maria married the man, and they moved into a house that was small, but which contained a second bedroom in which they hoped a child would grow up. Many years into their marriage, however, they had not managed to conceive, and Maria couldn't help but think of the crow that had flown from her pelvis in her youth, and felt certain that it was somehow related to her dilemma. She felt selfish and guilt-stricken for now wishing to deny the crow its freedom, but craved motherhood all the same. 
Maria's parents blamed her husband for their failures to conceive. Maria's mother-in-law blamed Maria in what she thought was a discreet way. Maria's father-in-law couldn't blame anybody because he had been shot in combat when Maria's husband was eight years old. So Maria blamed herself on his behalf. Maria's husband thought no one was at fault. He only kissed each of his wife's eyes whenever they looked tearful and told her that she offered him plenty in life. Maria tried to be satisfied with other things. She became invested in her job and took up gardening and had conversations with her neighbors about things that they found important. She just couldn't help herself, though. She often stood clutching at the door and wondered about the daughter that she might have had if she hadn't let that crow fly away. She thought that maybe, if she could find the crow, she could make things right. Maria left work one day, and instead of going home and finding comfort in a husband who was still excited to see her after nine years of marriage, she drove out of town and into the woods. The air was cooler than in town and seemed blue as night began to fall. Maria walked into the forest, thinking that if a crow was going to decide where to live, it would be here with all of the other birds. She walked until she left the beaten path. The only sounds were her feet sinking into the saturated earth and the flapping of wings high above her. Remains of sunlight bled through the canopy of trees, illuminating halos of damp forest mold and particles of leaves in the air around Maria. She stopped at the edge of a weak stream and could only hope that the crow knew where to return. She removed her shirt and smoothed it out on the ground to sit on. For the first time in over a decade, Maria dug her fingertips under her skin and opened the door. Leaning back on her palms, her empty abdomen whistling quietly with the breeze that passed through, Maria gazed up at the darkening sky and waited patiently for what she had lost. My name is Pia Milady and I'm a senior at NOCA. This past summer, I flew to Paris to study creative writing for four weeks. I was alone, and though I spent a lot of time exploring, I also spent a lot of time reading. I especially fell in love with the lost generation, the expatriates of the 20s who went to Paris to be artists, Hemingway and Stein and Joyce, and a lot of others. I started a journal that I filled with the things that I saw, and later, when I was home in New Orleans in my independent study, I've gone back and studied the lost generation in greater detail. I've revised parts of my journals to reflect how it felt to be alone in Paris. These are the first four notes I made in that journal. Number one. In front of me, a woman is lying in a fetal position on a bench. It is very early in the morning, and she neither looks disturbed nor excited. She stares at the world sideways, so that the horizon is the horizontal edge of a building across the river. The thrown-open windows of the building let in little keyholes of light. Inside, people sleep or daydream. It is too early for coffee, too late for wine. Nonetheless, there is movement inside every window. 
I imagine that she gets ready for work, him for a flight to Belize. The spire of a faraway church rises into the warm morning air like a warning. There are no boats going by. The bridges that connect bank and bank are empty, and I realize, though I hadn't noticed before, Notre Dame, just the tip of the flat-topped Campinelle, the bell tower to the right, stretching itself over the rooftops. In many ways, this is just another morning, but in the daylight, the stars still shine. Number two. A man walks into a tree and it knocks the hat off of his head. He grunts, Regarde, and picks up his hat and walks away in a hurry. He does not seem embarrassed, just annoyed. I know this sounds terrible, but I've been sitting in this park for hours, and this is the first moving thing I have seen all day. Many mothers push tiny French babies in their buggies. Many children play soccer in the grass. France won the World Cup yesterday. It's all very picturesque that all of these people would exist in this quaint little park on a Saturday morning. Man with hat has broken this facade. I wonder where the man with hat is going. It's a small park in a residential area, and he must be in a great hurry. Number three. I am in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and I can't breathe properly. Whether this is because I am deathly ill or just melodramatic is questionable, but still I can't stop rubbing the water out of my eyes and wishing I could see more. What should I tell you about my new home? That it is beautiful? You already know that. That I can't sleep at night? I am finding it very exhausting to pretend to be Parisian and still myself. Here, the sun does not set until at least 10.30, and people are quiet long before then. But still, I can't help this omnipresent feeling of dread every time I close my eyes. Like I'm equally afraid of waking up and still being here, or waking up and being stuck at home in New Orleans. Number four. It feels like I've been on this train for hours. The people in my car are silent, and it's 5 p.m. They're coming back from work or the market. I'm just another body in this space, but I, unlike most of them, have nothing waiting for me on the other end of the line. I decide on a whim to get off my train and go somewhere else. I get off at a random station. I have no idea where I'm going. On this train, too, nobody even looks at me. I get off at a station 20 minutes later in a part of town I've never seen. I find my way to a boulangerie and order a hot croissant. It is damp outside. I can feel the weight of the clouds, how they brim and bubble in the summer heat. The sky darkens quickly. It starts to rain. I think to myself, maybe I should figure out how to get home. But I don't. I am so happy to be lost and rained on in Paris. Number five. On a lonely night in July, two sweaty American girls wandered into a jazz club in the fifth arrondissement of Paris. They sat down, spoke some broken French to the waiter, and were served hot potato soup and green beans and chicken and wine. In a city with so much to do, the two girls had done absolutely nothing all day. The potatoes were exquisite. The music was ethereal. Midway through their food, a man from the table beside them reached over and swiped the hand of one girl and pulled her to dance. He was speaking rapidly in French, and she had no idea what he was saying, but she was in love with him. For a few moments, she wondered if this was real life. It certainly didn't seem to be, dancing in a jazz club in Paris. She resolved to write about it later. You just heard work from students from the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts' Creative Writing Program. More information about the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts can be found at noca.com. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. 
can tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thank you for listening.